When people think of Christians today, what kind of words come to mind? Besides yourself, of course. You know, sometimes uh, people might say, oh, Christians, they're, they're kind or they're, they're loving or compassionate. And we hope they would say such things about us and our church family. Uh, others might accuse Christians of being hypocrites. That's a common accusation, right? Or too political. Or they're all just angry about something. They're always against something. You know, now... We all know that the squeakiest wheel gets all the attention. I mean, you could have a thousand Christians living the right way, and all it would take is one of them to go sideways and do his own thing and uh, misbehave, and then all thousand or 999 others have to bear the burden of that one guy's bad reputation. People say, I knew it. They're all that way. But just remember this, if the world unfairly mischaracterizes you, know that you're in good company. The early church sometimes had to meet secretly because of persecution. And in these meetings, it was said that they participated in a weekly supper in which they ate flesh and drank blood. The accusation became in some circles that this group of religious zealots were somehow engaging in some form of cannibalism. And so they got a bad reputation. So just remember that the Lord is keeping score. He knows what's really going on. And we also need to remember that we do have people that are watching us. They're watching us always. They form opinions of us. Sometimes those opinions will be right, and sometimes they'll be wrong. But I think one of the worst things that people could say about Christians is this. Christians are just like everyone else. If that is fairly stated about us, then that is a terrible indictment. And I think we've reached a point, at least in America, where that has become largely true. For example... There's not much of a statistical difference between the divorce rate among born-again Christians and that of those who are not born-again Christians. Uh, now, you and I know that divorce can happen to any married person through no fault of his or her own. It takes two to stay, and it just takes one to leave. Um, but statistically, when it happens at, to Christians at almost the same rate that it does, to the general public at large, it becomes clear that our faith is not making enough of a difference when it comes to marriage. And I, and I use marriage just as an example. I'm not, I'm not picking on that particular sin or that particular topic, if you will, because I could use just about any type of metric to show that there are a lot of statistical congruences between born-again Christians, and those who are not. And uh, that's not good, that our faith doesn't make enough difference in our lives. I do want to impress upon you this idea. There should be a marked difference in the lives of those who truly know the Lord and those who don't. I mean, if we are just like the world, well, what's the point? 
I mean, why should the world consider becoming Christian if doing so makes no real difference in how we treat our spouses or how we raise our kids or how we study in school or how we are people of integrity at work or how we treat our friends? We need to live in such a way that everyone who views us has one of two reactions. At the very least, they say, well, that's unusual. Not many people live like that. Or, hopefully, some of them might say, I want what you've got. I want what you've got. I don't know what it is, but I want what you've got going on in your life. You know, there was a day when we could assume that our neighbors were Christians, at least here in the Bible Belt. Christians seemed to rule the day. We ruled society. We had a lot of influence in society. For example, we had blue laws, which restricted purchasing things on Sunday. But now, as the influence of the church has diminished, blue laws have largely disappeared, with one major exception, the purchase of alcohol on Sunday mornings. You cannot buy alcohol on Sunday mornings in Texas. And some of you are shaking your heads agreeing with me, and shame on you for knowing that. (laughs) See, I just go by what I've been told. I always thought that the reason that we got out of church by noon on Sundays was because of the NFL, but now I know. Because noon is when you can start purchasing alcohol. Okay. But we used to have blue laws, right? And uh, also our public schools would once try to keep from scheduling activities on Wednesday nights. Why? Because a lot of students would be in church, but not so much anymore. The schools have learned from youth baseball leagues that you can schedule games at any night of the week or even on Sunday morning, and good, solid Christian parents will encourage their kids to skip church for more important matters such as hitting a rubber ball encased in twine and leather with a stick. Much more important than your faith in God. Now, the days of blue laws and the days of churches having influence in the customs of society are long gone. But so should be any amount of time that we spend bemoaning the fact or trying to live in the good old days of the past. We can't live in the past Those days are behind us. It does no good to bemoan the situation that we are in. What we must do, rather, is make an honest assessment of our our present situation in this world. And here's where things stand. Culturally, we are living in a time that is largely parallel to that of first century Christians. What do I mean by that? We have little political influence. I mean, we have no power over those who rule over us. We have very few friends in high places. We are outcasts, just like the first century Christians. We are unnoticed, and when we are noticed, it's for the purpose of ostracizing us and perhaps one day even becoming more active in persecuting us. And if this is our lot in life, if we're living in times that are largely parallel to that which first century Christians lived, well, I've got some good news. 
If we are living culturally more and more in first century times, then the answer is simple. It's easy. We just have to be first century Christians. That's the solution. You see, instead of relying on political influence, which we have little, or social and cultural influence, which we have little, we must rely on spiritual influence, which we have a great deal of, if we tap into it. And instead of living lives that are completely indistinguishable from those around us, we must embrace an idea. And the idea is that we live radically different lives than those around us. And by radically different, I mean that we must surrender ourselves to living an uncommon and thoroughly biblical life. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to do a quick survey of certain teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to show you the kind of radical life that people will say, well, that's unusual. You don't see that every day. Or maybe they even say, I want what you've got. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, 11 and 12, here's what we read. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Of course, this is Jesus speaking. All of these scriptures we read today will be Jesus speaking. And he says that you're blessed when they insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, the world looks at persecuted Christians with pity or even with disgust, saying, well, they deserved it. They brought it on. They shouldn't have taken such a stand. They wouldn't back down. But a radical Christian doesn't live for the applause of men. He or she lives for the applause of God. And so it does not matter what the world does to us. A few verses later in verse 18 of Matthew 5. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. You know, there is a difference between the Christian who believes that God's word is sometimes beneficial and the radical Christian who believes that God's word is always sufficient and beneficial. Jesus seemed to indicate that we could have complete trust in his word. Why? In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17... Paul tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, in other words, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching and for rebuking and for correcting and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. God's Word is profitable so that you can be complete and equipped for every good work. Jesus said a few verses later in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, He said this radical teaching, So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. You know, there is a difference between the Christian who shrugs his shoulders if he doesn't get along with his brother or sister in Christ, and the radical Christian who actively seeks out reconciliation as much as it depends on him. We have so many Christians today that refuse to reconcile with their fellow Christian because they don't want to stir the pot. They don't want to bring it up. Just let sleeping dogs lie. But Jesus said your worship is essentially worthless. How dare you worship the Father when you can't get along with your brother? Get it right. If there's strife between you and another brother and sister in Christ, our Father is as grieved as you are when there's strife between your kids. So as much as it depends on you, fix it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, this radical teaching, But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, there is a difference between the Christian who seeks a way out of a troubled marriage, and the radical Christian who seeks every single way to fix it and to stay in it. And there is a difference between the Christian who just just totally dismisses what Jesus says about remarriage and the radical Christian who takes it seriously. If we want the world to notice a difference in us, Perhaps we need a remnant of faithful Christians who will take seriously Jesus' words about marriage and divorce and remarriage. That might be a good starting point. A few verses later in Matthew 5, 37, Jesus said this radical teaching, But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. There is a difference between the Christian who tells little white lies when it's deemed beneficial or polite and the radical Christian who tells the truth in love always. Jesus said in verse 39 and 40 of Matthew 5, But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. What a radical teaching. There is a difference between the Christian who strikes back at an evildoer in righteous anger 
and the radical Christian who forgoes his rights in order to live up to Christ's standard. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, a similarly strange teaching. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's a difference between the Christian who loves those who love him and the Christian who loves those who hate him. Jesus told us to be the latter. In the next chapter, in Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4, Jesus said, But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then in verse 6, Jesus said, But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then about fasting, Jesus said in verses 17 and 18, But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a difference between the Christian who gives and prays and fasts in order for others to see how devoted he is to God, and the radical Christian who prays and gives and fasts in secret so that no one can see how devoted he is to God. Jesus said in Matthew 6.20, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for neither moth nor rust destroys, and for thieves don't break in and steal. There's a difference between the Christian who seeks and loves wealth and then gives out of his surplus. And the radical Christian who seeks and loves God and gives because of that. Jesus said elsewhere, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot do it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, So don't worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. There is a difference between the Christian who worries about his needs, and the radical Christian who trusts God for his needs without worry. In the next chapter, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 3, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? There's a difference between the Christian who judges others and the radical Christian who judges himself first. Then in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said something so radical that it's very disturbing. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. 
in heaven. Maybe if we read the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount in context, maybe we come to this conclusion. Maybe the difference between the Christian and the radical Christian, as described in the Sermon on the Mount, is the difference between those who will say to him, Lord, Lord, and yet fail to enter the kingdom of heaven, and those who actually do the will of the Father. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 24 and following, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Please notice something before I read the rest of that next verse. Please notice that both the foolish man and the wise man heard the words of Jesus. The wise man acted. The foolish man did not. And Jesus said the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. You know, what our society needs are Christians who are so devoted to obeying Christ that they actually surrender themselves to this uncommon life that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is Christians like this that will make the world take notice, not Christians that live like everyone else. And if first century Christians are the goal, if individual Christians today can become radical first century Christians, certainly collective Christians, God's church, can likewise become a radical first century church. Somehow, over the years and the decades and the centuries, the typical church experience, at least here in America, has become one in which we want people to interrupt their everyday lives to come to church. But a first century church goes to the people in their everyday lives with the Word of God. Somehow, the typical church experience has become one in which we've come to think that worship is singing songs in church. But a first century church knows that worship is how we live our lives every day. Somehow, over the years and centuries, we've come to believe that the place where God works is in the church building. But a first century church knows that God's mission field is the world. 
Somehow over the last number of years and decades and centuries, we've come to believe that it's the pastor's job to share the gospel. But a first century church knows that the pastor's job is to equip the people to share the gospel. And so in light of the situation that we're in, as God's church, we face a double challenge. We face living in a society which considers us to be increasingly irrelevant day after day after day. And the other part of the challenge is that we live in a pandemic that dissuades even some of the most faithful Christians from attending church and receiving the fuel that they need. So what are we to do? How can we, in real terms, become more of a first century church in order to rise to the challenges that we've faced? You know, this is something that I've thought about, and I've prayed about, and I've discussed these things with others, and I've become convicted of something that I've believed in for years and years and years, that it is now important for us to act upon, and it's this, that it is my responsibility as a pastor to equip the saints for the work of service. In other words, to equip God's people to become not only growing disciples of the Lord, but also disciple makers of others. And the challenge for me has always been, how do I make this happen? At the very best, I've got most of the church's attention. Even if only half of the church membership shows up on Sunday, I've got them as a captive audience for 30 minutes. And if the sociologists are right and everyone has a seven and a half minute attention span, I've got seven and a half minutes each week <laughs> to accomplish this task. So how in the world do I do that? I think I have a part of an answer. If there was only a resource hub that was available to all Christians, even those who cannot attend church, and if this resource hub only featured resources in which the resources were made completely free of charge, following the principle of Scripture, as you have freely received, freely give, if we had a hub of ever-growing number of resources that addresses things like understanding the Bible, a New Testament overview, an Old Testament overview, things like that, that address things like Christian basics, like how to help new Christians, how to pray, that address things like history and theology, it taught biblical theology and systematic theology and church history, it addressed life roles, like how to be a biblical man, how to be a biblical woman, what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about singleness, about dating? What does the Bible say about parenting? If we had a hub that addressed things like spiritual growth, finding God's will, for example, or enduring suffering or biblical stewardship, I think that might be of benefit to people, both who could attend and who could not attend at this time, especially if it was all free. One of the great burdens of my heart is that there are so many resources out there. Which ones do you trust? 
And every single resource provider wants you to pay money to them. And I wonder if in our pursuit of materialism, even the pursuit of materialism by Christian authors and Christian resource makers, if there might not come a day in which we have to stand before the Lord and he says, why did you charge money? You already made a salary. Why did you charge money in order to get my word out there? And we might have some answering to do. Well, I've made a hub. A new resource hub. Completely free of charge. It's going to be growing in the weeks ahead. But everything that I've described in it is there. And it's at the website, disciplemakingresources.com. Completely free of charge to you. Because I want to help you in every way become a disciple maker and become a better follower of the Lord. And this is my offering. My offering to God to help equip God's people without charge to do what God has called us to do. You know, as a church, we must equip believers, even those who cannot attend church as often as they wish. We must equip them to be godly fathers and mothers and children and students and men and women and employees who are on mission to follow Christ and to help others follow him. What it will take on your end is simply this, a commitment of your life to become the radical type of Christian that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. And then maybe, maybe, the people in your world and the people in our world will begin to notice that Christ really does make a difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for showing me how to create this resource hub and for leading me to share it with your people. I pray that all of these ideas that are in your word that can help us live better lives, more missional lives, where we can join you, where we can truly understand that we are your ambassadors, your representatives here on earth, and we can live that out. Father, I pray that it will be effective. And Lord, I pray that each one of us today might simply strive to take the next step in becoming the radical type of follower of Jesus that he calls us to be. Some of his commands are so foreign to us. Help us become familiar in practical terms with living that out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.